Numine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu, miliaribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus, Christus surrexit, vera surrexit, Christ is risen. Hope you're all enjoying Paschal Tide and the third week after Easter. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about Catholic social history. This is part three of a series. I've linked part one and two. I know it's been a few weeks since we did the first two, but that brought us all the way to 1435 when we have a massive social shift, which begins to make everything a lot more complex than it was before. So we're going to try to get through that. We'll see if we can even get to 1776 tonight. No promises. We'll see how it goes. But um, first, I wanted to uh, voice a few prayer requests. We want to pray for um, one of our patrons' daughters. Uh, her name's Holly. She has Crohn's disease. So we're going to pray for her in the Our Father at the end of the show. Um, pray that she gets the treatment that she needs. And we want to also pray for Bill, a non-Catholic who is near death. And we pray that he be converted to the Catholic faith and he have salvation and have a good death. So we'll add that to our prayers. If any of you are in need, you can add your prayer request so we can pray for you. Um, and want to thank all of our patrons and please give me all your suggestions and your prayer requests. And we'll add those all to the uh, prayers that we pray. Um, so at the end of the show, we'll pray the Our Father for those intentions and any others that we'll add in. Um, so basically the Catholic social history, from my view, can be boiled down to a, a conflict between church and state, essentially wherein the essence of the gospel in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Christopher on and uh, Christopher plants rather. Um, and we're going to talk about how the kingship of Christ is the essence of the gospel. So the kingship of Christ are when the Christians began in the Roman empire, their gospel was Christ is Lord, which was a politically subversive message because the propaganda of the Roman empire was that Caesar is Lord. Now, we saw in 301, when Armenia accepted the faith and later Rome, we saw that the society began to be integrated so that there in, in church and state between the priest and the king, there was a distinction without a separation. And that is the phrase that is used in the two wills and two natures of our Lord. He is one person but he has a human will and a divine will. And that represents the spiritual and temporal powers. There's a distinction without a separation. So the central piece of culture is the cultus. The cultus, C-U-L-T-U-S, the cultus is a religious rite wherein the ruler supplicates the divine in the cultus in order to receive the divine authority to rule. And this is the central right of every culture is this cultus. And there's not only this cultus, but there's other uh, culti, but uh, I talk about this in my book, Introduction to the Bible, talk about what a cultus is and how that forms what a culture is. So that's the, that's the formation of culture. So there is a cultus, which is that religious right. The ruler performs this cultus to gain the divine authority, by which he rules. And then there is the cultus, which is also a, a, a greater body of rites and traditions, 
which are passed down by the elders of the society to the next generation, which then picks up this cultus, and then they become the elders. They pass down the cultus to the next generation. And so the cultus is this tradition. It's the central piece of tradition of any culture, which is passed down to the next generation. So this concept, that is the fundamental aspect of what culture is. So this is universal among many different cultures that follow basic precepts of natural law. And so every, so the Roman culture, the Roman empire had a cultus and that central cultus was the burning of incense to Caesar. And that central cultus was, is, is, was explicitly the cultus, which the Christian church refused to participate because the Christian church said that Christ is Lord. So that Jesus Christ is the son of God, not Caesar. Caesar is not the son of God. We will not pinch incense to Caesar. We will not participate in this cultus. And that's why it was such a subversive politically subversive, socially, culturally subversive act to refuse the very central cultus of the culture. But when these nations are converted and they're baptized, so there's Armenia, Roman Empire, later Persia. Um, well, Persia is never fully baptized, but they're trying to baptize and there's political situations with that. We're not going to get into it. But um, later you have the barbarians, um, you have Bulgaria, Russia, you know, all Ethiopia, Egypt, all these different countries. And they're baptized so that the central cultus becomes the holy sacrifice of the mass. And so then there, that's when there begins to be that distinction without a separation so that the king must be crowned or must in some way participate in the cultus of the holy sacrifice of the mass, the cultus of the true king, Christ, the king, the true king, he must pay homage to the true king in order to gain any authority in his society, in his whole realm. So that is the central cultus of the Christian culture. So from the cultus comes all the social mores of an entire society. You have the cultus and you have that stability from father to son, from father to son, on down the generations where they pass down the cultus to the next generation. Now, what you have with the Christian society, though, we discussed in the first two series, two episodes of the series, the Christian cultus transformed the society. So initially, when it was when Rome was first baptized, immediately certain things were abolished, such as abortion, infanticide, wife murder, slave murder, gladiatorial games, basically um, violent deaths that were unjust against human life created in the image of God and baptized, those things were abolished. But other things that were more fabric, pieces of the fabric of society and the economy, like slavery, continued to exist. They were not rooted out immediately. The basic fundamental idea about slavery was abolished, wherein a slave like St. St. I'm forgetting the um, the slave of Philemon, but the slave of Philemon, I'm forgetting his name right now. I think it's Onesimus. Yeah, Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a bishop in the very early church. He's a slave, but that is the Christian gospel, which fundamentally undercuts the ideology of slavery because the slave is also a man. And so what happens with this cultus as this, this cultus begins to transform society throughout all these ages that we've, we've gone through, we've discussed up to 1435, 
what you have for so slavery is a, is the perfect example of this where slavery is slowly abolished and it's not it's not abolished by bloody revolution it's abolished by a slowly uh churning of the the cultus the the central cultus of the culture of Christ the holy sacrifice of the mass which gradually reforms the morals of society and so the slave is first before the gospel, he's able to be murdered with impunity, and then he becomes a slave, a Christian slave, who, as St. Paul says, you treat as a brother. And then, like St. Onesimus, you can become a bishop. You can become a prince of the church, even though you're a slave. And that concept slowly transforms the way things work. So then you have the feudal society, which is a, a cooperative economy, uh, where there are rights and duties of every class. The Even the peasants, uh, the slaves become peasants and serfs who have rights, they have protections, they have securities. And so by 1435, slavery as such, where you have owning another man as property because he's a lesser man, because he's inferior, has been abolished de facto over all these centuries because of this Christian cultus. And the central piece here is that the culture is stable. There is this distinction without separation. There's always tensions as we discussed. There's the tension with the investiture controversy, the ch church and the state. There's you've got the rise of nationalism, uh, extreme nationalism, that is, not pure patriotism, um, with the Council of Constance when there are three popes and you have the rise of these different realms and these nations where you know you have Spain or France or these different countries which are beginning to identify as their own country instead of as a Christian first or as Christendom first. So you have this tension that's happening. But when we get to 1435, there's still this very strong Christendom mentality because the central cultus is still central. It's still the culture because it still has this cultus. As long as you just continue to have that generation upon generation, and you continue to pass down the cultus the culture will just continue to run and function and grow and transform the society into a more Christian culture. So when we talk about the so-called medieval era, which I call the Christian era, and the reason I call it the Christian era is not because everybody was a perfect Christian, but simply because Christianity was the central cultus, the central epicenter, the piece of culture, which was driving the whole era was Christian culture. The cultus was the sacrifice of the mass. And so that is what defined the culture. So that is why we call it the Christian era. Many did not live up to these ideals, but you did have barbarians who were basically street rapists before the gospel turning into knights in shining armor. And that is the impact of the cultist, the culture of this, basically this momentum. It's a cultural momentum. People weren't, weren't uh, forced to go to mass at the point of a spear. There was a cultural momentum where everybody knew you should go to mass, even though you may not even go, you may neglect your duties as a Christian, but there was a strong momentum. And that's, that's really the difference. So we get to 1435. Now in 1435, Pope Eugenius IV condemns slavery because what you have in 1435, you, you have the beginning of colonialism. This is where the rise in these nation states had become 
so great that and they had gained the technology remember the hundred years war was a great uh, a war which extremely um strengthened nationalism by having moving further from mercenaries to standing armies so there was far more militarism coming out of the hundred years war between france and england but then you have spain colonizing the canarian islands which are some islands off the coast of west africa but what you have is immediately you have these men violently enslaving African slaves, violently enslaving these Africans, and the Pope condemns it. In fact, the Pope condemned slavery in 1435, uh, 1537, in 1639, 1741, 1815, 1839, etc., etc. There was a long line of popes condemning the transatlantic slave trade, which would then be revived. Remember, so slavery was all but abolished, but then it was revived with the colonial area. But there was a constant condemnation from the popes. Now, not all the popes were stalwart against slavery, though. Some some popes even owned slaves. There was not a, a very there was not a pure conscience with the with the, all the popes during this era. But there was a, a, a very bitter struggle between the colonial powers on the one hand and all the pious clergy on the other, particularly the Jesuits. Now at this time, the Jesuits were good Jesuits. They were Catholics. They were spreading the gospel and converting natives. And there was a bitter struggle between the Jesuits and the colonial powers, which eventually the Pope decided against the Jesuits and against the natives and in favor of the slave owners in 1773 with the suppression of the Jesuits. But we'll get to that in a moment. But what you have is this strong nationalism and strong absolutism. This is the era of which goes from the Christian era kings. The Christian era kings were very limited monarchs. They had very limited power. They did not have a large this large bureaucracy. They did not have a great amount of force militarily. They could basically call upon their lords to defend the realm. They could tax people, but there was also a great deal of local power. There was local subsidiarity power, the local lords, the local villages, and you had that local power. But with the rise in the in the 1400s, you have this strong nationalism, which begins to make itself known. Now, I'm going to read from two works here. So one is Cahill, which I've used before. This is a fundamental work you really need to take a look at. Cahill one of the last good Jesuits of the 20th century framework of a Christian state. I'm also going to take a look at uh, Lehner has Catholic enlightenment. Now this is a great work because it provides a counterpoint. This guy is a liberal Catholic who's actually trying to defend Pope Francis by writing this history. And so this is a very good counterpoint to uh, provide other arguments from the other side. You always want to look at both sides of the historical argument because there's always going to be various gray areas and a lot of different things that go either way. Everybody wants history to be black and white to further their own agenda, but most history is very gray. There's a lot of exceptions, a lot of different complexities. So, but what you have, in addition to this national rising, you have the, the Renaissance. I'm going to read from Cahill, page 83. He says, the sudden spread of pagan Greek learning and culture combined with debased pagan ideals masquerading as humanism 
together with an unprecedented accession, accession of wealth consequent upon the discovery of the new world and the opening up of the maritime routes in the Far East, tended to produce a great deterioration of morals, especially among the leisured and privileged classes. So you have all these colonial powers, these princes, nobles, kings, they're, they're just going to, they're just reading all these, these Renaissance works. So all these old pagan works that are being rediscovered and they're all pagan, obviously. And so they're, they're pre-Christian. Now, not all of it's bad, obviously Plato and Aristotle and these philosophers and whatnot, but it does have a pagan ideal of virtue, which is not tied to grace. It is basically an implicit desire, denial of original sin, which is going to be the central piece of the modern philosophy when we get to that. So what this produced was when you have this deterioration of morals in the 1400s with the Renaissance humanism, you, you, you change from the period of limited monarchs to the period of absolute monarchs. And this is the period of absolutism. And this is what makes the crucial difference in the cultus. Before this, you always had these tensions, but this central piece is what changes the whole dynamic, the whole social fabric of everything is this absolutism. Cahill again, page, page 83. Prominent among these characteristics are the absolutism of the government, whether the latter be a monarchy or a so-called democratic body. And this is a very important point because later on when the Democratic Re the Re Republican revolutionaries are going to come along, they're going to say, well, we're going to have a republic, so therefore we'll be free. But really, it's actually just a um, facade for the same absolutism and even worse than the monarchs had. Cahill continued, an ever-growing tendency to bring domestic life under the despotic control of the secularist state a practical disregard for the human dignity and independence of a person who is without property or power, a revival of the old pagan conception of the absolute rights of ownership in disregard of its responsibilities and duties, the gradual disappearance of communal property and of the cooperation co cooperative social organizations, which did so much under the Christian regime to safeguard the interests of the poor. So what he's talking about here is that the two different justice, the two different ideas of justice that, prevailed during the Christian era. And that was communicative justice, which is where you are paying someone a, a just price for his goods. And there's also distributive justice, which is that you cannot exponentially accumulate wealth because your wealth also belongs to the poor, your excess wealth. You need to provide for what you need for your family. So you have your own property rights. There's property rights for the individual family, but there's also a distributive uh, right of property for the poor. You can't just con you just can't continually to get more and more and more wealthy because that's just unjust. God has given us wealth to also distribute to those who are in need. And we've talked about this. So what what changes with this absolutism is that you have the influence of what's called nominalism. Now, nominalism is the idea that there are no absolutes. There is no th no thing that is an absolute thing called justice for example. So it's not just everything that you do has to reflect a thing called justice, which is God, which is basically the nature of God, which is justice. Everything has to sort of relate to this. No, it's not about an absolute thing called justice. It's about the will of the sovereign. It is about the will of the individual. And we'll talk about how this gets played. This is the absolutism. It's not 
the ruler must it, it does not need to pay homage in the cultus to God in the holy sacrifice of the mass. He can actually dictate his own religion. And the central person who made this happen was Martin Luther. Now, let me back up a second. We'll talk about the cultus and then we'll, we'll come back to the nominalism and why that's important. So in 1517, when, um, you know, actually it's not 1517. That's his, that's his, his, um, 95 thesis. I think it's 1521 if memory serves, but when, when Martin Luther is excommunicated, he burns two things. He burns the bull exurge domine from Leo X that excommunicates him, but he also burns the codex of canon law. To give you an example of what this would be like, this would be like in the United States, if some guy got up and fired his gun into the air and then burned the American flag and the U.S. Constitution. That is what Martin Luther did. He made a political revolutionary act by burning these two documents. And this is what makes, has the, has the potential to make a revolution in the very nature of cultus. Because what happens is the secular ruler, if he was faithful, would have excommunicated or would have executed Martin Luther. And why? Isn't this unjust? Well, if a mass murderer were running around shooting people in the United States, would we not debate about whether or not that person deserved the death penalty? If there was a serial killer killing people who was on a rampage, would we not debate about whether or not that person deserved the death penalty? Well, a heretic is a mass murderer of souls. And in as much as the soul is more excellent than the body, the mass murderer of souls is more heinous and more nefarious and more evil than the mass murderer of the body. And that is why the church executed heretics. It is because of the nature of the, the very fabric of the culture. This is why the Roman, the Roman Empire persecuted Christians because they recognized that the Christians represented a complete social revolution. But what Martin Luther does is that he creates a new principle. And this principle is anti-culture. This is not simply a different culture. It is not simply like the, when the pagan Roman Empire became the Christian Roman Empire and it went from one culture to another. No, because the essence of culture is the passing down of the cultus from father to son, the right which contains within it all of the mores and morals of uh, the culture and the belief system and everything. What Martin Luther introduces is he cuts off the role of the elder in the culture because the role of the elder is to pass down the cultus to the younger generation. He cuts off the role of the elder and he makes himself the arbiter of the cultus. So he makes his own mass. And this is an anti-culture principle. Why? Because it is the principle of revolution. It is no longer the principle of passing down the cultus to the next generation. It is the principle that 
I will cut off the elders myself and create my own cultus. So that is a different thing than every other culture, even that. So not just the Catholic culture, but every other culture known to man, which follows basics of natural law has a cultus, has a culture, has elders who pass down the cultus. But what Martin Luther does is he makes himself the elder cuts off the elders. So what happens? Well, the next generation of Protestants rebel in, in fact, the very generation that he's in his own generation rebels against him and his colleagues rebel against him because he, what he's introduced is anti-culture because culture creates order and peace as it had done for these centuries and created these, this social fabric, the social change in, in society. It is no longer stable. It's the principle of revolution. So that's what causes this, this despotism, this absolutism, because no longer in the nominalist system, you would need to pay homage to the cultists. You would need to pay homage to justice, to God who is justice. But if you are the new absolute principle, not what came before you, not the wisdom of the fathers, not the cultists, not the church, then you are the absolute ruler. You are the new pagan emperor. That's what you're doing. So let me talk about a few of the social ramifications of this principle of revolution. First, you have the effect on women because women had been given by the gospel an incredible increase in their social status, just not, not even talking about um, just restricting ourselves to social questions. So even, even the, uh, where's the, there's a great quote here. Kate Hills has from, from a, uh, a rationalist. So even this rationalist says, so this is Leckie who is a rationalist. So this is not non-Catholic, not even a Protestant. He says in the cult of the blessed virgin, it raised the prestige and elevating the character of Christian women. For the first time, the woman was elevated to her rightful position, no longer the slave or toy of man, no longer associated only with ideas of degradation or of sensuality. Woman rose in the person of the Virgin Mother into a new sphere and became the object of a reverential homage of which antiquity had no conception. And that's why Cahill says the doctrine of Aristotle, that the woman is a kind of inferior man, because Aristotle taught that the woman was a misbegotten man. And so the woman was this, this inferior nature to the man. And uh, Cahill says, the, this doctrine is devoid of foundation and is, an, and is especially repulsive to the Catholic who has been taught from childhood to honor the mother of God next to God himself. So the cult of the Virgin Mary especially provided every Catholic boy and girl a great reverence for a woman. So boys would be taught through the reverence for the Virgin Mary to respect and honor women. Women through, through loving the Virgin Mary would be, be taught to love their own femininity and love who they, who they were uh, made by God uh, to, since God created the Virgin Mary and came to earth through her and her very feminine nature was as St. Irenaeus puts it, the cause of salvation for the human race. So this has a massive social impact on the place of the woman. So you have 
the this incredible impact on the way that people see women and to to give women the honor that is due to them especially through the impact of the cult of the virgin mary again it's the, it's part of the cultus this the same thing where it flows from this cultus and flows to the society and the way that people act but the the uh principle of revolution in the Protestant Re Reformation changed all that. Now, um, before I mention that, um, the, the other aspects of that continue to hold. So you have indissoluble marriage, which protects a woman. It gives a woman lifetime security and income and protection for herself and her children. A man cannot simply run off, divorce his wife. He cannot take another wife. He has to honor his wife. Indissoluble marriage, the sacrament of matrimony, is this great, it just it, setting aside all the other benefits, which are even greater, the spiritual benefits. But just from the social perspective alone, it, pro, it pro, provides and protects for the woman. And so we have this great, as with all the other social classes of marginalized peoples, whether that's the poor, orphans, widows, but just women in general, women rose to such a great degree of reverence and homage and protection in the Christian culture through all sorts of things, particularly the Virgin Mary. And we're, we're in the month of May and it's obviously Mother's Day, obviously in, in the United States, I think in many other countries as well. So you have this reverence for mothers through the cult of the Virgin, but the uh, Cahill goes on to, to mention how this absolutism, the principle of revolution basically turned women back to the pagan slavery. Here's what he writes, quote, the prestige of women suffered an incalculable disaster by the abolition under Protestantism of the veneration and cult of the mother of God with the disappearance of a conventual life, that is convents, women were again shut out of a recognized status in social life outside the Mary state, which the religious life had previously afforded them. The attitude of the husband toward the wife naturally tended once the church's authority was removed to return to the pagan ideal of master and owner rather than loving friend and companion. That's that absolutism. Clear evidence of the sad deterioration of women's prestige can be seen in the English literature for the 17th and 18th centuries when the withering effects of Protestantism on social life had begun to be felt in full. The chivalrous regard and respect for women reflected from the peerless glory of the Queen of Heaven disappeared from the English literature. The woman was now again valued only for her sex, and the one who did not or had ceased to exercise sex attraction was too often made the target of coarse jest so repulsive to the truly Christian mind. And so what you have here with the Protestant Reformation is you have a great assault on women. You have an assault on marriage, which is an indirect assault on marriage. You have an assault on the Virgin Mary, which threatens all women. And it's because of this absolutism, because the church's authority is removed. The cultus is removed. Now the Martin Luther or whoever is their own cultus, their own elder. And so what you have is you have immediately, you have men abusing women in the Protestant Reformation. You have the Henry VIII's marriages where he would just cast aside his, his wife, marry a new woman. You have a Lutheran protector, the Prince Philip of Hesse, who was the protector of Martin Luther. He took two wives 
and there were harems and debauchery. Luther himself would actually traffic in nuns. Here's a quote from E. Michael Jones, Degenerate Moderns, quote, Trafficking in nuns had become one of the chief ecclesial transactions of the Reform Party in Germany and throughout the 1520s. Luther, Luther's Wittenberg became one of their favorite meeting places. Libido culminating in broken vows was the engine that pulled the Reformation train. It was uniquely a uniquely effective way of organizing ex-clergy in opposition to the church. And here's a contemporary writer commenting on that who says, quote, Luther's counsels had been carried out to such a degree that there is absolutely more chastity and honor in the married state in Turkey than among the evangelical Protestants in Germany, end quote. So you have this debauchery where they're trafficking in nuns and they're selling them off to their Protestant friends. And these are all former priests who are breaking their vows of chastity with these nuns. And this is what creates this, this, uh, debauchery in the Protestant Reformation, so-called, which is all being justified by a erroneous theology and a an anti-culture wherein the man becomes this despotic ruler over the woman because he is now, he's cutting off the authority of the elders. He becomes his own culture, his own cultus. And that is what causes this social ramification, which eventually will lead to feminism and communism and all these other things that will come later. But this is the central piece, the central principle of revolution, which undercuts the, the basics of justice and the concepts that are necessary for social fabric. So the Protestant revolt was not primarily a theological dispute. There were also these social things such as lusting for women and debauchery. There was also what E. Michael Jones again calls simply a looting operation. This is what he calls the entire Protestant revolt. It was simply a looting operation. In England, The again, we talked about how the local lords, the local powers, in England you had the monasteries and, and various local powers which had lands which were, among other things, devoted to the care of the poor. So people in need were given what they needed as a part of the distributive justice. But with Henry VIII and the other Protestant reformers, the nobles around the king simply seized all the lands for themselves, depriving the poor of their sustenance. And so it's more absolutism. This time we're, we're looking at more political and economic absolutism where we're just creating our own laws. And the, so the Protestant countries are now just seizing lands from the poor. And this is where the wealth begins to accumulate in the hands of the few, and the fewer and fewer. And that is why the, and then the distributive justice principle is also a cast aside so that the exponential accumulation of wealth is no longer seen to be problem. And we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But the, when we talk about the poor, the other thing is that the, the feudal serf worked less days than I do and got more securities than I do. The, they had holidays, which are for holy days. So they had every holy day off. So they had two or three days per week off. But what Henry VIII does is he starts abolishing holy days, all these holidays, because he wants them to work more because he wants more wealth. And so 
the fundamental order of society towards the proper ends begins to shift with this principle of revolution, which is anti-culture. So the, an important point about this is the definition of wealth. Now, wealth is typically defined in our day as material possession. But if we define wealth in a different way, it's, it's very telling, I think, when we think about this. If we define wealth as access to what is true, good, and beautiful, as well as security and leisure to enjoy what is true, good, and beautiful, then we see the great wealth of a medieval so-called peasant. He had access to the truth. He had the true faith. He would die with the last sacraments. He had the goodness, the morals because of the, the stable cultus, and he had beauty. And he had the security and leisure to enjoy those things. But with the Protestant revolt, you have a concept of wealth, which is simply material accumulation. And so there is this, this seeking after material accumulation. Now, when we get over to the modern economics, we're going to hear from the Adam Smiths of the world, who are going to say that wealth is all about material accumulation. And even today, many Catholics will argue that the so-called so human flourishing is all about sort of having the material accumulation and having that security. But there, the question is, how many, how many die without the sacraments? How many die without baptism through abortion? These are the considerations we need to we need to consider. So let's continue um, to get through. So what what Henry VIII does through Cramner is he changes the cultus as they're doing all over with this principle of revolution. Cramner creates his own Novus Ordo Mass, which is his new Cramner Mass, which is designed to change the whole culture. And the way he does it is to change the cultus. He's got to change the holy sacrifice into this Novus Ordo, and this would prefigure our own Novus Ordo today, which copied almost point for point what Cramner did in the 1500s. So this is where, again, we talk about nominalism. Nominalism feeds straight into basically might makes right. The principle that the absolute monarch is the one who calls the shots. It is not the church. It's not the elders, not the cultists. The ruler says fiat, and it is done. And this is where the that principle of church and state, which is distinguished but not separated, is so important because it represented a check on the king's power. But with Henry VIII and all the other Protestant revolters, they create they put those into one. So king the king of England becomes the the head of the Church of England, so that the just like the Mohammedans, and by the way, the Mohammedans were feeding the Protestants weapons during this time, helping to cause this, this whole bloody revolt. But the if, when you concentrate the church and the state in one person, then his will is no longer checked by anyone. So when you have the church and state distinguished but not separated, you have the pope and the king, you have the priest and the king, and the priest must tell the king what he must do. He must witness to the absolutism of justice. 
of God himself. That is the only absolute principle. But when you remove that and you concentrate it in one person, you just, you no longer have a distinction and no longer have a separation or later, as we'll see, you, you have a total separation, then either way, you have no check on the power of the government. And that's why this period, we have the absolute power of monarchs. This is the period of absolute monarchy. The absolute monarch does not rule according to the ultimate principle of God's justice. He, he may even give lip service to God's justice, but he does it for his own ends. And that is why he becomes a tyrant. And this then will provoke our next episode, which is the Republic Re Republican revolutions of the world. So a few dates as we continue this, we have during this revolt, you have 1555, which is the Peace of Augsburg, which is where we get the principle cuius regio eius religio, which is each monarch, each prince in their location dictates what the religion is going to be. And this is an absolutism because it is not based on whether or not that religion is true. It's based on whether or not that monarch wills it. So it's based on this individual will, this absolutism. There's no check. These are tyrants. They, they simply just rule by their will. So then you have the 30 years war. Now the 30 years war was mainly between German principalities which ended 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. And this treaty was really the birth of the modern nation state. So before this time, you did not have individual states, the individual nations, which were their own sovereign, fully sovereign individual nations where everybody in that nation was a citizen of that place and that place alone. Instead, you had Christendom, which is where, you know, you may speak French or you may speak Spanish, but you're a Catholic and that loyalty comes first. And even when we go back to this rising nationalism in Constance, you still have everybody's a Catholic. They all want one Pope. They all want one church. They all have this strong united identity. And the most fundamental aspect of that was the Latin mass, the cultus, the Latin language, which formed that unity. But when you have the shattering of Christendom into all these national blocks that are killing each other, then you eventually have the 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, which are these nation states where everybody's a single nation. If you're French, you're French. If you're Spanish, you're Spanish, even if you're both Catholics. And you may even put the, your French identity before your Catholic identity. And this is especially when there's a strong change towards national armies. Now, before in the Hundred Years' War, we had far more standing armies, but now we have further strengthening of the national army and an abandoning of the mercenaries. And this is going to lead directly to the first conscriptions of the general populace during the French Revolution, but we'll get to that later. So you have the absolutism. Now, meanwhile, during all of this, you have the colonial powers, which are colonizing and you have obviously these these elites who are working to enslave the natives and then you have all these pious clerics who are working to convert the natives and protect them from exploitation from all these barons and whatnot but when the reformation you, you see a very crucial change in the culture so 
and you can see this in, in North America. You have the French in the North and, and Canada, and then you have the English Protestants, and then you have the Spanish Catholics. And what's very interesting, if you contrast the Spanish culture with the English Protestant culture in regards to the natives, because the Spanish culture melded with the natives. They intermarried. Everybody intermarried, even though there was still a strong racism through you know the full-blooded Spaniards who were perfectly white, you know, they frowned on everybody and there was a great deal of uh, injustices towards lower classes and whatnot. All that existed. Okay. But the, the point that I'm making here is that the cultists remain central in the very fabric of the culture. The, because again, the Catholic culture is a culture, but the Protestant culture is an anti-culture. It's not even a culture. So, because what you have in England, in the English Protestants in Native, in North America, they they have anti culture, so they can't actually meld with the Native Americans. They can't intermarry with them. They think they're just crazy superstitious pagans. Now, yes, there are crazy superstitious pagans, but they have culture, and so that culture is meant to receive the gospel and become a Christian culture, like it did in the Spanish culture in new Spain, but with the English Protestants, they cannot comprehend what culture is. They cannot convert the natives, intermarry with them and create one culture. They can't do that because their Protestant religion is the principle of revolution. And the native Americans, not, not even, even the, even very savage native Americans could, could not even comprehend them. Even the savage native Americans would still have culture and elders and basic principles of what makes a society. Whereas the Protestant Americans, they had anti-culture. They had the principle of revolution. So they cannot meld with the natives. So this is what makes the crucial difference is that with all the injustices and exploitations and enslavements of the natives, even by the Spanish or other Catholics, there was still, at the end of the day, that slave still went to Holy Communion. That slave still was baptized. That still that slave still could become a priest and did. And that's what made the crucial difference because there was a uniting cultus, which united the culture and manifested the truth of the society. Again, that not nominalism, but the true justice, the truth. And again, wealth is access to truth, goodness, and beauty. Whereas the, the Protestant Americans could not comprehend that. They could not intermarry because they viewed that as a superstition to even have a culture, to have sacramental things, sacramental rites, cultists, those things. They viewed them as evil. An interesting example of this, and this is, comes from the Eastern Orthodox. So the Russians came over and evangelized Alaska. And so the Alaskan natives there were converted to Russian Orthodoxy. And the Russians still had culture and the Eskimos and the, you know, Aleut Indians over there were converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, I, I understand, obviously that's schismatic, but they still had a culture and they still had sacraments. And so they, they could preserve what was truly culture in their native tongue, native, some native customs and things of that nature. But when Alaska was sold to the United States, then the U.S. government sent a bunch of Protestants up to Alaska to put all those Indians into Indian schools 
to cut off all the basics of their culture so that they would have to abandon their culture in order to become Christians. And that's when a lot of Aleuts actually who had resisted converting to Orthodoxy went over to the Russian Orthodoxy after that because they realized that they couldn't even continue to be the basics of who they were without abandoning the basic fundamentals of culture. So I'm going to wrap this up and we can talk questions or comments because we have to get to 1776. So what happens in the 1700s is there is a very important controversy in France called Jansenism. And Jansenism was condemned as heretical, which it was, but the problem was the king, as we, we talked about, the king was, was gaining this absolute power where he was so much more powerful than ever before. He was ruling like a tyrant. And the king was trying to meld the Catholic faith in order to use it for his own ends, which Napoleon would later do after him. But what he does is he tries to suppress Jansenism to, a, to an extent where he provokes a local reaction from the local lords and the local people. And what's interesting is that the Jansenists, who are heretics, they actually use propaganda through their newspaper, the Ecclesiastical News, to turn a great deal of public um, public scorn against the king. And what happens is Lehner writes, the Jansenism's criticism merged with Enlightenment ideas, most notably those in Rousseau's social contract, which is written in 1762. And from this, a strange group of bedfellows coalesced, people who, for very different reasons, opposed the newly emerging royal tyranny. Noblemen who were offended by royalist demands and papal laws, clergy and simple believers who adored Jansenist piety and rejected the structures of the state church, and secular enlighteners for whom toleration was a core principle, philosophical principle. That's Lehner, page 51. So what happens is there's this strong movement of republicanism, which is seeking to be free from all of the old cultists, just like Martin Luther before him. It's the same exact principle of revolution, but this time you have a coalescing of multiple groups who are sort of the oppressed, quote unquote, minorities in France who are seeking to overthrow the old regime, the old cultists. And because of the tyranny of the king, and he was a tyrant in the, in the, the absolute sense, we're talking about this absolute monarchy. Now, setting aside good kings, even that in that era, some of them, but the issue was that the, the amount of bureaucracy, the amount of power that was being wielded at the time provoked such a strong reaction against them. And this is what led to the French Revolution and the American Revolution and all the Republican revolutions after that. This was the era of the burgeoning liberalism, which was seeking to throw off all hierarchy, all of the old cultists, which was simply a continuation of the principle of revolution, which was anti-culture. Now, the last thing I'll talk about, and that is the revolution in economics. And this is going to be one of the crucial points which causes the, a ma- the massive social change. And that is when what E. Michael Jones says, discusses that before this time, economics was a subject for study in moral theology. So like we talked about, there was community justice, you had to pay a fair price, and there was distributive justice, which is where you needed to distribute your goods 
properly, basically everybody should get what is owed to them. doesn't mean everybody gets what is equal. It means everybody gets what is owed to them and it could be different for different people. And so there is the concept that economics should be governed by the moral law. But what we have is with the birth of uh, liberal economics, you have what E. Michael Jones says is you, you take the, the economics out of the moral law and you put it and treat it like physics. It's just simply atoms bouncing around. And if you just set up the system just right, it'll just create all this wealth for everybody. And this is the beginning of the modern economic system. So Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations, 1776. And this is the, so the, the foundation of this modern economic system. Now, Kay Hill writes, unlimited freedom, this is page 133, unlimited freedom of competition in economic matters sets up, in fact, a species of anarchy as a result of which the weaker members of the social body inevitably fall under the domination of the stronger and more ruthless. And so what you have here is that the church understood that man is afflicted by original sin. In every transaction of economics, the stronger is always tempted to take advantage of the weaker, to not pay the fair price, to not pay the, pair, uh, the fair wage, whatever, or to exponentially accumulate wealth without regard to justice. And that, so that is when you take the economics out of the moral theology and you put it into some kind of physics and you think that it's just going to work itself out, that is what causes a disaster. Now in 1745, you have Vix Pervanit, which is one of the first encyclicals, which was an initially really just for the Italians, but later was sort of absolutized by Gregory the 16th. So this, in this encyclical, usury is condemned absolutely but there is an allowance for extrinsic titles which is where you you get paid for various aspects of the loan which are not the loan itself so your you know your business costs and those other things which had been allowed for centuries but this idea of absolute accumulation of wealth would eventually provoke a serious counter reaction to this but what you have with these burgeoning ideas, you have uh, Thomas Hobbes dies in 1679. You have John Locke, 1704, Rousseau, 1778, with Voltaire in the same year. And you have with this Jansenism, with the, this burgeoning colonial powers as they continue their, their power. And you have these ideas that man should simply be free to accumulate wealth forever, exponentially. And this is what's going to cause a reaction. And against the absolutism there comes the absolutism of the mob and this is the republican revolutions which begin in 1776 so this is when the republican revolutionaries oppose the absolutism of the kings with the absolutism of the mob which is the democracy the the mob rule. So this is where we'll get into on the next episode, but anybody have questions, comments, um, please uh, send those over and we'll, we'll discuss those. But so the, the basic idea um, 
that we've discussed here is that the, the central idea of cultus and culture gets maintained by the church during all these times. We have the counter-reformation and where the church solidifies the cultus, the, the, the Roman mass, the Roman missile is standardized. It's exported across the globe. You have the Jesuits who go out like soldiers to reconvert the world. They bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. They go all across the globe, converting natives to the gospel. And this is what the, the great good that comes over comes out of some of the evil when, when men who were seeking simply to enslave natives, they were going across the globe, but the gospel went with them and the gospel overtook them because the gospel is more powerful and gave to all these native peoples the truth, goodness, and beauty, the true wealth that is their, is their calling by, by God's command. So that is, that is the, the great glory uh, that is ours in the Counter-Reformation as Catholics is that the gospel in the, in the face of so much, so much death and destruction with the Protestant revolt, so much revolution, the response of the church was powerful, was strong. It, and it went after the, the souls of, of all these natives and, and converted the world. So Scott is asking, uh, can you address liberal teleology versus Catholic teleology? Um, so Scott, I think what you're, uh, what you're getting at here, if I understand you correctly, when you say teleology, you're talking about uh, the ends of society. So the liberal teleology of the liberal conception, meaning the liberalism, not not liberal and conservatives that we talk about today, but liberalism as it was conceived of in 1776 and 1789, that teleology of society is the idea that it is purely material. It's, it's not thinking about the world to come. The idea of the telos, the end of society, is simply a material end, that we should all be at peace, that we should have material wealth. So you have this liberal conception simply excludes the supernatural end. Whereas the Catholic end says that the supernatural end must also draw with it the natural end. The natural end must also give way to the supernatural end. And that's why societies should also be ordered towards the supernatural end because the, the natural ends, the, the material wealth is simply a means so that you can have access to truth, goodness, and beauty, and you can have leisure and security so that you can pray. So the state, sh the state, if the state has the, a Catholic teleology, the state, the end of the state is to offer the cultus by which that state gains the authority, the power to lead the society towards eternal life. So I, Scott, I think if I'm, if I'm getting at what you're asking there, I hope that helps. Um, let's see. So Lowell F Foster Forrester says the argument that capitalism has raised living standards can be countered by using access to truth, goodness, and beauty. And we need to, I need to give credit to Lowell here. Um, it was Lowell who actually um, articulated that best that I, I'd ever heard. And so um, credit to Lowell there. Thank you very much. Um, the, let's see, Justin, the Catholic, 
maybe off topic, but can you speak of how Willem of Ockham was the grandfather of nominalism? Yeah, this is, um, so in my book, Introduction to the Holy Bible, um, so Ockham, yes, he is the, basically the grandfather of Ockham. I mean, I, I would even put it back to Muhammad. Muhammad is, is really the nominalist par excellence. He is the nominalist, um, but Ockham didn't really gather that from, I mean, he may have been influenced by Avicenna, which is obviously Mohammedan, but basically, yes. Um, and he was involved with a political dispute with the Pope. And this is what I talk about in my book is that he was giving the, um, giving the intellectual uh, weapons for the, the princes of his day to gain political power, just like they would with Martin Luther. They just, they just didn't have enough power to really make the Protestant Reformation happen at that time. So yes, the, so he is the grandfather of, of nominalism and yes, it basically gets choice back to him. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how that, that happens and comes about and it gets, it is so intimately tied to the political power and that's what people miss. They don't get that, that this whole thing is, is about political power. It's about absolutism. That's what nominalism is all about. It's all about the state having absolute power over you. Because nominalism denies that there is such a thing as an absolute justice by which kings must rule. So, uh, yeah, that gets at uh, Dr. Jonathan talking about when did nominalism appear. That's kind of where it gets at. Uh, yeah, there's um, Father Thomas Crean. I was just listening to the interview with um, Brother Andre Marie. There's an interview on Census Fidelium with Thomas Crean. I've not actually read anything from Father Crean, but... Um, he's articulating some of these, these things as well. So, yeah, so that, that's the, um, nominalism, integralism, um, the, if you've ever read the integralism in three sentences, that really gets at what Scott was asking about with the teleology, um, over at the Josias, they have this articulated very well. So he, this is from, um, the Josias. Um, I'm not sure if this was written by Edmund uh, Volstein, but so here's, here's what it says. Integralism in three sentences. Catholic integralism is a tradition of thought that rejects the liberal separation of politics from the concern with the end of human life, holding that political rule must order man to his final goal. Since, however, man has both a temporal and an eternal end, integralism holds that there are two powers that rule him, a temporal power and a spiritual power. So this is the teleology. So the liberal concept is that the temporal power simply has this temporal end and it has no reference to a supernatural end. So continued, it says, and since man's temporal end is subordinated to his eternal end, the temporal power must be subordinated to the spiritual power, end quote. So this is getting into that teleology where they're talking about the, the basics of the end and how the ends must go together. They must not be opposed to one another. So Scott, under the question, uh, can you explain the errors of materialism and empiricism and how these are intertwined with liberalism? I, I mean, I would just take that as um, basically materialism. It's just kind of stopping those ends again, because when you consider everything, you continue consider the material world. The, I mean, you, when you read the declaration of independence, Jefferson says, 
the he uses the social contract theory from people like Rousseau and Hobbes who conceived of government simply as a means to have this peace. So he says governments are instituted among men by the consent of the governed for the sake of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are all temporal goods, but they're all material. So they're all just simply in the material world, which they are goods. And like we talked about, you need to have those goods to have the ultimate good. But when you define the end of government simply as purely material, when you have this materialism, this materialist mindset, it's all about the matter, not the super supernatural. So it's the natural, not the supernatural. So what you end up doing is if you ignore the supernatural, you ignore the central wound of man, which is original sin. Man is inclined to evil. His intellect is darkened and his will is weakened. And this is the central thing that gets denied implicitly by the liberalism is that they deny that original sin is a problem because if original sin is not a problem, then their state can simply just have all these material ends and will just live in harmony in this great Republican utopia or communist utopia later. But if man is afflicted by original sin, he has need for divine grace. And therefore we can't just have everybody sing Kumbaya and have this great liberal state. We have to have the means of grace, which is the cultus, which is the sacraments. But because liberalism is based on anti-culture, then what you get is this revolution. So materialism and empiricism are strictly anti-culture because a cultus is a divine right, a right, a religious right of tapping into the supernatural whereby the state justifies its power over you. But if the state justifies its power over you merely by materialism, there is no reason why that state should just be set. It should not be just set aside. Should just be, we just revolt against it continually. And that is why we have the principle of revolution, which is a continual revolution. Every single generation revolts against the generation before it because there's no stable culture. So it's kind of the opposite thing happening where the, the, the culture just more and more disintegrates. Whereas in the Christian culture, the culture more and more solidifies into Christian order. So I, I hope that addresses it. I'm not, I'm not an, I'm not an excellent philosopher, so I can't really go into a lot of depth there, but I mean, I, that was, that would be how I view uh, the materialism. Um, Justin, the Catholic says, as far as the French American revolutions, how far did Freemasonry Freemasons carry the day, regardless of the majority populist population's opinion? Well, Cahill says on that point, um, oh no, I'm not going to find it, but what he says is Freemasonry is the key to all the social revolutions over the past 200 years. Because Freemasonry is essentially the, it's basically uh, a great deal of liberalism where we need to abolish the Catholic state. We need to just, everybody, everybody's path to God is as good as another. It's, it's um, conduct over creed. 
It's what it is. As uh, Charles Kalum says, conduct over creed. That's what masonry is. We live in a Masonic world. Our whole culture, it's not really a culture, it's anti-culture, but it's a society that has morals. And those morals are conduct over creed. If you try to oppose your creed and say your creed must be the state religion, you are anathema. You are excommunicated. That's a sin to the Masons. So I would say the the influence of Masonry is always difficult historically to determine, obviously, because it's a secret society. So difficult to determine to what extent this or that person are Masons and all that. But we know that, you know, George Washington baptized the first White House with Masonic rituals. So he was performing his own cultus of Masonry on the very White House. So certainly there was Masonic elements to the American Revolution. It was certainly less anti-Catholic than the French, certainly, but there was certain Masonic elements. So, but if you have a basic, basic trappings of Masonic masonry that, you know, just this conduct over creed, that's basically the world we live in. I mean, that, that dominates everything. Um, the, here we have a uh, framework of a Christian state. That's the, the Cahill book. Framework of a Christian state. This is a reprint by Roman Catholic books. Um, and uh, that's going to pretty much do it. Um, Garrett, you're asking about evolution. Uh, we've got a few uh, videos on that. Uh, take a look at evolution in the Catholic faith on our channel. It's on in, under conversations. So that is going to do it. Uh, let's pray for our intentions. The, um, the intentions that we mentioned at the beginning of this show. Um, the poor, uh, the poor souls, the sick and the dying, everyone's suffering. The people who have lost their income, they're in, on, they're on unemployment. Make sure to check check with your neighbors. Make sure the elderly are cared for. Um, just want to appeal to that and make sure that we care for the people who are in need in this time, in this crisis. So um, on Wednesday, we're going to talk about Mohammedanism, and which I'm going to argue is the worst heresy of all time. And I'm going to talk about why that is. And we'll also go into nominalism with Muhammad, which is a very important uh, aspect of this, which which needs to be addressed. So we'll talk about that. Um, we're going to talk later on about uh, Catholic masculinity this week. Um, and like I said, we'll also have Matt Gaspers on in a few weeks talking about Our Lady of Fatima and the Mohammedans. So with that, let's pray and let's trust in God and make sure that we don't give up hope. It's hope for the deliverance, pray for the consecration of Russia, the conversion against the heirs of Russia, which we'll talk about later. We're going to have a part four of this Catholic social tissue. We might need to break that up into a few parts because it gets really complex once the Republican revolutions take over. Um, so we'll get into that. So let's pray. Amen. Pater noster quies in chedi sanctificeto nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum fia voluntas tua, sicut cello et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut de nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris. Et in enos in ducas in tentationam se libera Amen. Christ is risen. Nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen.